what I want to do is make sure that I am taking an appropriate level of risk, still being able to sleep, and still have enough cash so that I don't freak out all the time. And that's the balance that I've had to come to. But really, my worst investing mistake was not investing. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest, Meredith Jones. Meredith, are you ready to rock? I am. All right, let's go. Let's tell the audience a bit about you. Meredith Jones is an internationally recognized researcher, writer, and speaker. She's worked in the investment industry for 20 years and is the author of Women of the Street, Why Female Money Managers Generate Higher Returns and How You Can Too, which won an Axiom Award gold medal in 2016. She was named one of Inc.'s magazine's 17 Inspiring Women to Watch in 2017. And she has been a regular columnist for Institutional Investor and is a contributor to Market Watch. She focuses on alternative invest investments, diversity in investing, and responsible investing. Meredith, take a minute and fill in any tidbits about your life. Well, I think your listeners are about to become very well acquainted with my Southern accent. So uh, you should know that you are listening to me from the booming financial metropolis of Nashville, Tennessee, where I have worked for the last 20 years in investing, which I think is will come as a surprise to many people who think of investing only in terms of London, Hong Kong, San Francisco, New York, and, and all of the major financial hubs. I am a tremendous geek. I have Rain Man-like abilities to recall arcane financial and non-financial facts, and I will try to do none of that on this podcast. <laughs> well, that's quite a skill. Um, Rain Man was, gosh, one of my favorite movies from the day, so that you, you can throw out a few if you feel like it, so... Um, also, one of the things I remember recently uh, hearing about Nashville is that there's, it's, there's a, is there a thriving startup community these days there? Or is there anything going in the startup front? So the, the main thing that's going on is we are the number one bachelorette party destination in the state, in the, the country at this moment. So every time I get on a flight coming home from a conference on a Thursday or Friday night, I'm surrounded by girls who seem only able to say the word woo in a very loud voice. Uh, we are getting a lot more startup activity, particularly around healthcare. Nashville has always been a healthcare hub. And we actually are getting a lot more financial activity too. UBS opened an office here not too long ago and Alliance Bernstein announced that they were moving about a thousand people down earlier this year. So I think there is a lot more financial activity than people know. The other thing, when I moved here, at least, Nashville had the most millionaires per capita of any city of its size. It had the most churches per capita of any city of its size and the most DUIs per capita of any city of its size. So I kind of figured it was hard to go wrong with a city full of rich, drunk Christians. So here I am. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> All right. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into that worst investment thinking it will be, Tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it, and then tell us your story. So there's a couple of things I think you have to understand about me to, to put this story really in context. And, and one of the biggest ones is that I grew up poor. And when I say I poor, I mean really poor. I did a TEDx talk back in April, and I described it as powdered milk poor. 
I didn't realize that milk came out in liquid form from cows until I was in elementary school and could buy milk at school. I thought it arrived in a box with a scoop and you mixed it with water. So my mom worked three jobs to put that powdered milk on the table. She was teaching for two and she worked at a coffee factory for one of those jobs. So I really didn't grow up around money and I didn't know a lot about money. And because my mom worked those three jobs, including the weekend job at the coffee factory, my maternal grandparents had a pretty big influence on me as a kid because I stayed with them on the weekends that my mom was working in the coffee factory. And my grandparents, of course, were children of the Great Depression. And so to them, cash was king. They kept money swirled around the house. It was not unusual to go through my granny's house coat pockets and find crumpled up five, 10, $20 bills. Cash was just their thing. That made a pretty big impression on me when I was growing up. And, and cash was a big deal to me as a kid growing up. In fact, until Nashville flooded in 2010, I actually had the first passbook that I used for a savings account when I was a kid, still in my basement. Of course, the, the flood made that mold and suddenly it lost some of its appeal for nostalgia, but, but I had that for, for a good long time. And uh, my Aunt Sandra actually still sends me $25 every birthday. And now I'm 47 years old and next month I'll get another $25 from her. And I look forward to that 25 bucks every month. So, so cash is a big deal and, and making sure that I have enough cash was really ingrained on me from a very young age because security was having money and it was money that you could put your hands on. It wasn't theoretical money. It wasn't unrealized money. It was money, money. And uh, so it's kind of unusual, I think, that I even ended up in this industry. Certainly, you don't find poor kids from Alabama in the hedge fund industry too often. But somehow, I ended up in a job working at a multifamily office as the director of research researching hedge funds. Uh, and I started that job in March of 1998. And of course, one of the first things that happened to me was long-term capital management. And that fund obviously had to be bailed out in September of 1998. And it scared the hell out of me because suddenly I was worried that my source of cash, my job, my entire industry was going to be gone because that's what the papers were saying. That's what the Wall Street Journal was saying. And the CEO of that multifamily office actually took me to lunch to tell me to calm the hell down, that I would still have a job, that these kinds of things happened, and that I didn't have to worry about my paycheck. So that's just how ingrained it was. So things go along for a little while and everything's all well and good. And then we hit the dot-com bubble. And, you know, I know that people like to talk about millennials and how it's so tragic that they had to do this horrible financial meltdown, you know, when they were getting out of college. I just want to say that Gen X did it first. We might have been a small generation, but we got screwed in the stock market ourselves right about the time we graduated. And, you know, they didn't make a movie that was called Reality Bites for no reason. Somehow I, I girded my loins. I made it through that particular financial meltdown and continued, like most of the population, to bebop along uh, pretty happily through most of the early 2000s. Until finally, I found myself at a cocktail party at a small little company, you might have heard about it, uh, called Bear Stearns, in early March of 2008. 
And I still remember that cocktail party. Uh, I was wearing a kick-ass red suit uh, for that particular cocktail party. And I was talking with a friend of mine who was a managing director there named Peter. And we were joking about the markets and, and talking about how things were going. And he told me everything was fantastic at Bear Stearns, couldn't be better. Life was great. And then the next Monday I wake up and Bear Stearns isn't there anymore. So a little bit of a shock. So I did the patented Meredith Jones money move and I freaked the hell out. So I pulled all of the money that I could think of that I had in the markets out in March of 1998, which if the story ended here, 2008, sorry, Eight. 2008. <laughs> uh, and uh, so if the story ended there, I would actually be a genius, right? I wouldn't even be on this podcast at this moment. But unfortunately, the story does not end there. So I managed to get out of the way of the train wreck that was the 2008 financial crisis with all but one small Roth IRA that I totally forgot that I had. And I just waited the thing out in cash. I slept well every night. I was in heaven because I didn't lose my comfort. I didn't lose my security. I didn't lose my cash. Unfortunately, then we get to March of 2009 when the market bottomed. And I thought to myself, not safe. I'm, I'm not going to go back in. And then we got to March of 2010 and I was still nervous and I didn't go back in. And then I started to dip my toe back in the water in 2012, and I didn't get back to, to fully invested until probably around 2014, 2015. So while I missed all of the downside of the market, I also missed a large portion of the run-up, except for that one crappy little Roth IRA that I had forgotten about, right? So... Uh, I finally remembered about this IRA uh, maybe in 2016, and I decided to consolidate it with all of my other accounts so that I would you know, never forget that I had money laying around. And of course, because I had forgotten about it, that particular investment had done quite well. In fact, I had made over 15% annualized return in that thing for the last, oh, 10 years or so. Wherein my, whereas in my actual account, my bigger account, my, my retirement account that, I was count, that I'm counting on so that I don't end up eating cat food and, and shuffling around like a crazy old lady on a street corner with a, with a grocery cart, that account had made nowhere near 15% every year since 2009. I, I now have had to think through my abilities to market time, and I've decided that while I may have Rain Man-like capabilities and remembering arcane facts. While I may be more money savvy and investing savvy than I was as a little kid, I still have a lot of the same proclivities when it comes to investing. And so I'm never going to be smarter than the market. And now I take a much more set it and forget it approach, much like that poor forgotten Roth IRA. And it's become very important to me to put a certain amount of capital at risk that I can live with and where I can still sleep, although maybe with the aid of half an Ambien occasionally at night. But what I want to do is, is make sure that I am taking an appropriate level of risk, still being able to sleep, and still have enough cash so that I don't freak out all the time. 
And that's the balance that I've had to come to. But really, my worst investing mistake was not investing. Fantastic. Oh, that's the first time that we've got a story that says, says exactly what you've said, not investing. Um, maybe what we could do is if you could just sum up what you learned from this experience, if you could sum it up into a couple bullets for the audience so they can, they can grasp it. But tell us about what you learn. Number one, I may get lucky from time to time, but I'm not going to outsmart the market. That was the number one thing. Uh, number two, you can't make money if you're not willing to lose a little bit of money. Uh, and number three, uh, that paying too much attention can sometimes make you indulge in behaviors that are not profitable. Uh, and so don't try to get out in front of yourself and, uh, and front run your own thinking. You, you really have to trust that you can set a level of appropriate risk that you can uh, set a, a financial strategy, and then you have to trust that strategy to a degree. Um, and I, I didn't trust myself, I didn't trust the markets, and it, it cost me big time. Um, so let me summarize what I take away from that story. In addition to the things that you said, which I think are all valuable lessons, the, the, the one thing that I would say is that, first thing is that I did a study a, a while ago for just for myself, just trying to understand about to what extent markets bounce back. And I went to the bottom of every market in the past and I looked at how many years it took before that market got back to the prior peak. And I did that looking at uh, what percent got back I, by one year, by two years, by three years. And what I found is almost 100% of, of the times the market regained back to its prior peak by five years. So if conclusion from that, from my perspective, and of course the, past, the future will never repeat itself, the lesson I learned is that the market will always come back. And that's very different from stocks. You know, stocks don't always come back, but the market generally will always come back. So be careful. Well, and you know, when you, when you think about it from that perspective, so there's been four 10-year losing periods for the S&P 500 ever. And two of them were at the beginning of my investing career. So two, one of them ended, I think, in 2008, and the, and, the, and the second one ended in 2009. So the 10 years before that had been, had been not great because obviously they included the dot-com bust and part of the financial crisis. And so, you know, what I had to think about was what is an acceptable level of cash? What do I feel like I could live on and use for 10 years if I needed it? Obviously not replacing everything, all my salary and everything, but to give me a level of comfort that I, again, wouldn't be eating cat food out of a can. And then I invest the rest of it. And so, again, I think that's everybody has their own definition of risk. And that was my definition of risk, not having enough to get by on some sort of protracted financial meltdown. And now I've figured out what my definition of risk is, and it's made me a better investor because I have the money siloed, I get to sleep well, and I don't try to do the same kind of jackass market timing uh, that I did in my youthier youth. Right. The other lesson I take is that Warren Buffett always says this idea that you're a batter in a game, in a baseball game, and you're not penalized for waiting for the next pitch. So if it doesn't come into the strike zone, don't swing and don't hit it. But that's, in some ways, that's not necessarily true when you think about our lifetime of earning and investing. We have a limited amount of time. Let's say we have 30 years or 40 years that we're investing. And if we, if we miss out on the, if our money's not in the market earning a return, 
you run the risk of what we call shortfall risk, that at the end of the period, you don't end up with enough money in that. And so that brings me to the other point. And as I mentioned, I had been uh, teaching and sharing with my nieces how to invest since they were 18. Now, when you're 18, it's a whole different ballgame. Basically, you've got everything is in your favor, particularly the time value of money and letting that money compound. So in their case, I told them, just number one rule, never sell. Now, that means that when they go through a really bad downturn, you don't sell. You just contribute, continue your contributions every month, and you just continue to contribute because the value of the compounding of the money that you're putting in at a young age is almost always going to beat the value, if any, that you could generate by properly timing the market because most people just find that almost impossible because it's hard enough to figure out when to get out, but the harder part is when to get back in. So that would be you know, my other lesson that I taught my nieces, which is just that just stay in the market and particularly once you've set your strategy, let the market earn over a long period of time. And that brings me to my third point, and that is a lot of people talk about you know, investing over a one or two year period, but I say, look, if you're 30 years old and you want to retire when you're, when you're 60, you've got 30 years to grow your wealth. And if you're 60 and you retire and you live to be, let's say, 90, which is not impossible these days, you've got another 30 years of retirement. So you've got 60 years you're investing for. So then I always say, well, so what was that one year return you're talking about, right? 60 years is what I think about when I think about investing. So I think that's the last lesson I would take away from it is that it's a long-term game uh, about accumulating what you can so that you have it when you need it. Is there anything I missed? No, I don't think so. I mean, like I said, if, if I was going to give anyone a piece of advice, I would tell them, don't let the monsters in your head become the monsters in your pocket. They will, they will eat all your cash. You will end up with, uh, with less than you started with. Well, that's what's nice about doing an interview with you. You've just answered the next question I'm gonna, I was going to give you, which is, <laughs> what is one actionable uh, piece of advice? And I think um, the point that you're making also can be overcome by writing things down. And, you know, there's other tricks that, that you've done, I'm sure, and that others do to try to overcome that monster in your head. But definitely when it comes to long-term investing and building your wealth, we've got to overcome that or at least find some ways of tricking it and making sure that it doesn't take us over at just the wrong time. So yeah, rules-based investing works really well for me. So again, I, I, I know what I'm investing. I know what my target return is. I know what I need to retire on. I know the amount I need to feel safe and comfortable. I know when I get to a point of pain that I'm not going to be able to stand anymore. And as long as I go with that, that tends to work really well for me. And it keeps the worst aspects of my behavior from interfering with my ability to generate a return. Rules-based investing. I love it. That, let's leave it at that. There you have it, audience. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we wrap up, Meredith, thanks again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Come to Nashville and bring your woo. All right. <laughs> uh, we will keep that in mind. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.